This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components. With over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets, check out renthal.com. And uh, on today's Paddock Pass podcast, we've got a very special guest. In uh, a Renthal Street Sessions interview, we have Fabio Quattararo talking about winning the 2021 MotoGP World Championship. Adam Wheeler, you did that interview with Fabio, and uh, it was an interesting interview, but uh, like you said on last week's show, it was a bit of a quick hit interview as well. You only had 10 minutes with Fabio. Yeah, um, apologies for the presentation first off, because, um, you know, I I started by talking about his technique, really, just trying to work out where such a young man became so exceptionally skilled. Of course, he came into the World Championship hyped as the next Marquez. Um, And it took him a few kind of rudderless years, really, in Moto2 and Moto3. I think he only had made the the podium four times. Um, So people were questioning whether it was a talent who really didn't have any direction. Um, He had spent many of his formative years in Spain, um, at least trilingual. So there was, uh, I think, quite a few questions around him. Um, I was just trying to ask him about you know, where his feeling for for riding a motorcycle quickly came from. And that's why we just, we'll start the interview with him talking straight away. Um, actually, Steve, the interview was done on the basis of it uh, for a, a story for the Telegraph uh, newspaper website in the UK. And, um, you know, maybe it's something we can talk about another time on the podcast, but trying to get any MotoGP or motorcycle racing coverage in mainstream UK press is just like trying to get blood out of a stone. I mean, it's um, I, I really can't understand the philosophy because... Uh, You know, the people I've spoken with on sports desks or, you know, people affiliated or working for those publications, their their primary goal is to get new clicks or new subscribers to those platforms. And I always reason that if you make even just a minor investment in perhaps uh, giving coverage to a new sport such as MotoGP, maybe you'll get x amount of hundreds or thousands new subscribers based on that coverage you know what's what's to lose even if you try it for a year or six months that was always my argument but it just seemed uh that people don't believe there's enough following in in motorcycle racing to make it worthwhile which we all know is is quite the opposite yeah obviously enough i I want to intro david and neil as well and david obviously the second adam said talent without direction you came straight to mind (laughs) but um (laughs) i think it's also worth uh, just picking up on what adam's talking there about trying to get new media outlets because you're sitting in the middle of the netherlands where max verstappen's just won the world championship a week ago in formula one and the netflix series has had that impact and that means that we've had tons of you know culture and tv editors we've had journalists with no link to formula one talking about formula one for the last 10 days because of what happened in abu dhabi and i think you know, obviously with MotoGP having their new Amazon series coming out before the start of next season, probably, that means that there is the chance where, like what Adam says about trying to find you out, that's, this could actually be a big drive towards that. Yeah, I mean, the, the I should be honest, I haven't watched Drive to Survive, and I, prob- and, I mean, uh, I will watch the Amazon series because it's uh, my sort of professional duty to do so. Um, but it's not normally the sort of thing that I would watch, but it's, it's extremely, it's an extremely popular format, um, to give people an insight into the drama, which goes on behind, uh, behind the scenes. And, uh, in fact, I mean, you know, Dawn make these little like five minute sort of clips of the, generally the journey from, uh, sort of after the race all the way to the podium. And they're, quite often the most insightful because it's just riders talking amongst themselves about the things which affected them. Um, and 
yeah, that I think is that human element in the end. I know lots and lots of people complain about uh, the whenever a rider is crossing the line, you know, winning a race or whether there's a battle going on, uh, them cutting back to show the uh, the director cutting back to show sort of reaction in the garage and all the rest of it. Uh, the reason for that is simple. It's the human side. It's the human element. It's to show that, you know, people are really, really involved in this. It, 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 it's to, to give the viewers uh, a sense of, you know, the importance of what it all means to, uh, to everyone. And I think that, that is something which uh, a series like the Netflix series and which the Amazon or the F1 Netflix series and the Amazon MotoGP series will actually help. But, uh, you know, winning a championship makes a, a big difference as well because there has literally been wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Max Verstappen here. Uh, even my newspaper, which just does not cover sort of motorsports at all really it's all cycling and and, and football um all of a sudden they've had sort of you know almost on a daily basis two or three articles uh about uh, about f1 which is a, a just a major change neil uh joining us on the pod paddock pass podcast as well and neil you actually did watch the f1 for a change and were interested to to see the reaction of a lot of people around the world about just what had transpired and that's what's quite interesting whenever something big like this happens it was the exact same as what happened after sepang 2015 for moto gp you know i went down to get my hair cut and the barber was asking me questions about moto gp all the years before that he never cared that i worked in moto gp and then suddenly you get a big instant like this and it creates a lot of interest and the same was the case for formula one Seems that way, Steve. Yeah, exactly. Um, I must say, I didn't actually catch the Formula One. Still haven't rewatched it um, because you've been uh, talking enough about it. I've just been inquiring about it. Uh, yeah, because by doing that, it means I don't have to watch the the whole two and a half <laughs> hours. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it's got everyone talking. It was pretty dramatic, pretty controversial. Um, in many respects, that's exactly what you want in a in a championship finale. Something that goes all the way to the wire. Um, feels slightly manufactured from what I've seen and what I've read. Um, pretty unfair. It seems like, you know, the rules weren't uh, followed exactly as they should have been. But um, don't, say that, of, don't say that in Holland or you'll get lynched. <laughs> I, I'm, in, I'm in Barcelona, Dave, so uh, I can say that from the security of my flat here. But yeah, it, it seemed a little phony, um, but, you know, fair play. And uh, like you have to say that F1 this year delivered one of probably, I'm no F1 historian, but probably one of the more dramatic title fights in, in its history. So um, that was pretty cool. The proverb that there's no such thing as bad publicity doesn't quite really ring true, does it? Because it seems like that the sport was questioned and the integrity of the sport, uh, the fact that the championship still might be decided uh, in a courtroom, or that was the talk anyway. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's, um, I don't know, I, like as Neil said, it did feel like a very manufactured end to the championship and we're kind of fortunate. I mean, as well, Dave, I think you were having a discussion on Twitter with some people where it, the FIA seemed like, um, or they made the, the MotoGP race direction seem very shrewd and uh, balanced and uh, totally fair uh, in comparison, even though it would be nice to see MotoGP showing some of the transparency that they have in Formula One. Yeah, I, like I have no idea and no real understanding of what went on because you know it's cars and cars are the work of the devil. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't, didn't follow it at all. But I mean, 
the point is everyone is talking about F1. You know, everyone really is talking about F1, and new people are talking about F1. So, and it was it was the same after some of Sepang Rossi. I mean, you know, the the the, the Sepang clash with Rossi and Marquez. The whole when you look back at what happened, the whole episode is all all rather shameful, and the way it was handled was all rather shameful. However. Um, it made headlines around the world, and, and now looking back at it, no one no one really cares. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter so much. It's just one of one of those topics which comes up amongst fat. Well, yeah, all right. Yeah, it, it's one of those. No things- one really cares about Dave. No, have you written anything on Twitter in the last six years <laughs> that uh, would elicit the same sort of response as anything about Sepang twenty fifteen? You even did it this week where you said release the data yeah. just to piss people <laughs> off. So obviously people still care about it. Well, yes, but I mean the the uh, the hardcore fans still care about it. But uh, for for most people, it's just sort of like history. It's just an, oh yeah, God, that was weird. What was uh, what was all that about? And I think this is going to be the same sort of thing. You know, like in four or five years' uh, time, they'll all be looking back and oh yeah, that was it was a really exciting final. But um, uh, the the way it ended was really weird. And it's just going to be one of those discussion points which goes on and on and on. But people become less and less emotionally involved in it, more and more emotionally involved in just sort of like having picked a side and being able to uh, to defend it and they'll re- remember the details. But more people will watch F1 or be involved in F1 somehow, either directly by watching the races or by watching this Drive to Survive thing on Netflix. Just because of the drama, that, that, that's been uh, there's been lots of added drama in there, which is going to make it much more interesting for fans to keep the, like, the narrative. Sports requires a narrative. It has a natural narrative. You start uh, full of hope and then events unfold and someone triumphs and someone loses. Uh, that's, that, that is your classic, you know, dramatic narrative. You start full of hope and then it all falls apart. Anyway, QPR fan, Adam Wheeler. <laughs> um, you know, Dave's talking there about the, the fact that the Drive to Survive series and what that's done for Formula One. This was pretty much an ideal MotoGP season to come into as well because there was action all the way through it. It was one rider finding form, losing form, finding form. Obviously, we've got our interview with Cotteraro. He wins the World Championship at the end of it. He was the only rider that stayed consistent all the way through. But one of the things that was quite interesting listening to Fabio was about how it took him a bit of time to realize that he was world champion. I'll ignore the comment about Rangers, Steve, because we're quite nicely p- located in the playoff positions and move straight on to the second part. And I mean, the, well, I'll be <laughs> honest, as a mid-table League One Ipswich fan, I can say <laughs> absolutely nothing. Um, I mean, the, the MotoGP Amazon series, uh, you know, on the face of it, okay, we had a guy win his first title two races before the end of the season, um, but there was still plenty of drama going on. Um, you know, we, again, we were talking about this um, on our, in our WhatsApp group earlier this week, you know, I mean, Quattararo had a, a second, I think a second or maybe a third um, set of surgery for arm pump. Um, of course, he had the, the issue with the chest protector in Catalonia. Um, Yamaha had a meltdown around him, uh, you know, in terms of his teammate, he had three different teammates during the season uh you know i was kind of writing all this up for the for the telegraph story and, and when you you look back at 2021 it was was not an easy season for him at all uh, and of course ducati by the end really were i mean if they'd started the season like that then you, you would have to imagine the desmos adici would have swept all away before it and uh when the way things finished in the Jerez test 
at the end of uh, of the season or preview in 2022. It's not looking uh, particularly optimistic for anybody that's not on uh, a bike from Bologna next year. So I think Guadalajara, what he achieved in the face of all of that is pretty impressive. And it should make for some um, pretty good drama when it comes to a TV series. But then, you know, we have also heard that maybe Yamaha were one of the manufacturers that weren't so uh, enthusiastic about participating in this in this documentary or... Um, uh, perhaps not quite the right description. This uh, reality-based series of a sport, um, and you know, you do you do hope that the the guy who won the world championship, you know, Francis first in the premier class, has quite a prominent role. Yeah, um, it, it, he should have because you know, the, in the end, the 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 entire season ended up revolving around him because he was the one constant. Um, but this is, I think, with any sort of TV series, this is a, always the struggle you are going to face, and especially the especially the Japanese factories, but not just the Japanese factories, the 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 European factories as well. They have sort of a culture of of, of secrecy, if you like. They don't like they're they're absolutely terrified that um, any of their secrets will uh, uh, will leak out. I mean, I at the Jerez test, I got shouted at by a um, uh, by a Yamaha engineer who was out. By by the side of the track, filming the uh, uh, filming the video, uh, filming the riders, and um, just you know to look at their body position and all the rest of the stuff that we, which they do. And I wanted to take a picture just of you know him filming this stuff. And he went off on me and telling me, "Oh, you can't do that," and all the rest of it. And um, it, it, it's that absolute culture of secrecy uh, because the picture I took meant. Absolutely nothing. You know, it, there, there's nothing that anyone would be able to glean from it other than that there is a Yamaha engineer stood out there filming videos um, or uh, filming riders. But that that's hardly sort of, you know, the uh, this massive secret that the factories are doing this because they've been doing it for decades and or, well, for years and years. So, yeah, it, actually breaking down this culture of, of the, the where, where the default setting is uh, to not allow anyone to ever say anything about anything and never to let anyone out and then to actually let uh, the broadcasters come in and uh, you know, start filming everything. It requires an enormous amount of trust that this sort of info, the information, won't actually leak out. Yeah, that's actually one of the big things, Dave, for me that I found quite strange whenever I first went into the superbike paddock was that garages were open. You could walk in and out. You could talk to anyone. You could take pictures. You could do this. You could do that. But obviously enough, that's a production-based championship where there isn't really anything that teams don't know about the individual bikes so you were able to glean an awful lot more from whether it was walking down pit lane looking in garages or talking to people but MotoGP is a very different kettle of fish you know like we see it with the shutters coming down straight away we see it with teams protecting things from their bike making sure that you can't take a, a full side on shot of a bike all these kind of things there's a, a lot that goes on to it to try and keep their little secrets. And I think obviously with something like the ride height device over the last couple of years, that's probably one of your best examples of teams making sure that other teams didn't know how they were activating it. Yeah, but the, the other thing is uh, something like a ride height device is also uh, difficult to actually hide because it requires physical parts on the bike. Whereas <clears throat> a, a lot of stuff... Uh, the changes are so subtle. I was looking with a with my uncle, who's a former racing tuner, uh, 
pictures of the Yamaha frames and going over them. And he had some really interesting comments about the way, uh, some of the things which you can't see because he's worked with extensively with aluminium. So he knows what aluminium does when you, when you treat it in particular ways. Um, uh, and he knows how difficult it is to do sort of, you know, one thing, weld it up in a particular way or bend it in a particular way. Uh, uh, so, so that was really in, instructive. But a lot of that can is actually hidden because unless you are, you know, deeply involved with all this stuff, you've got no idea about what's going on. So it's actually, um, you could actually show quite a lot to, to, to most punters and they wouldn't really know what's, what's actually going on because they can't tell the difference. It's, it's very, very different. And especially in the electronics engine era, most of the changes were happening with the with the ECUs, and there was absolutely no way that you could see that externally. Uh, that's why I think like aerodynamics and and the ride height devices are more interesting visually, just because you can actually see them. Yeah, let's bring it back to Fabio Quattararo and his twenty twenty one season. Big Neil, what was your big moment from Fast Fabio through this year? I mean, there was a lot, wasn't there, Steve? Um, as Adam was mentioning earlier. Or Bear in I, mind, Neil, four of us have to give a big moment from the year, so don't just list them all. Well, this can't was, be like, who's going to win the race? And then suddenly I'm left saying, I don't know, the lad at the very back. Yeah, I was going to list five or six moments there, Steve, but since you're you're pinning me down and you're uh, demanding that I choose just one, I think it would probably be the, the moment at Silverstone or just the, the Silverstone weekend in general because that was probably Fabio's most dominant weekend of the year. I think I've heard him say... Uh, afterwards that um, it was the first time he went into a race knowing that he was going to win um, and it was also quite an interesting weekend because he had a, a big big crash on the Friday I think during FP2 down at Veal he had a nasty kind of low side uh, twisted his ankle in a kind of sickening movement that uh, made you believe that he might have actually snapped his ankle um, but I think within five or six minutes maybe a little longer he had uh, not just got up from that crash but uh, got back to um, got back to the pits, gone back out on a second bike and set, you know, the fastest lap of the session or one of the fastest laps of the session. Um, and at that moment, that was just quite indicative of what Quadraro was doing in the season and, and, and where he was. He was the, the kind of standout name. Um, obviously, towards the end of the season, Banyaya rallied. But, um, yeah, when you take the season as a whole, um, I think, you know, Fabio was obviously the, the best because he's champion, but I think even Ducati's late surge put just what Fabio had been doing in the first part of the season into context and, and gave you an idea of, of sort of the minor miracles that he was doing each week to to be up there with him, to be beating him, in fact, um, and to be more consistent than, than all of the Ducati men. So, um, yeah, I think Silverstone was just, he made that look so, so easy. Um, and, you know, there was still a, a fair bit of adversity that he had to face throughout that weekend. So, uh, yeah, Silverstone would have to be my vote. Dave, that was an excellent way of Neil to mention a lot of moments through the season without mentioning any in specifics uh, other than Silverstone. What about you? What was your big moment of the year for Fabio? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, when you look back at it, it is like he was... He was uh, like the stillness at the, at the eye of the hurricane. There was so much going on around him. There was so much that happened, so much um, uh, sort of going on generally uh, that it's amazing he came through. For me, I think um, the uh, zipper gate, the, uh, uh, the, the, the problem with his open leathers at Barcelona, um, that was a moment which could have completely derailed his championship because it, uh, um, I mean, 
the fact that his leathers came open, or well, his leathers came open. He opened his leathers and threw uh, threw his chest protector out um, because he said it was stopping him from breathing. It was uh, it, it was uncomfortable, um, and then rode around with with basically open leathers. Uh, picked up a three-second penalty and got kicked off the podium and and put back to I think sixth for sixth or seventh place. Um, that I think that he treated that like it was something incredibly unfair. Um, he was uh, absolutely he was very very angry about it afterwards, and I still I think to this moment he's still quite angry about it. Um, uh, but you know he came back next race and was uh, just focused and fast and 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 the same you know it he it, it, it didn't upset him mentally um that whole race had been really really strong where he'd you know dropped back a few places and then uh, made up ground to be fat, basically you know f- uh, fighting with Miguel Oliveira for the win uh, it, it was just an absolutely outstanding performance, right up until the moment where he started having problems with his uh, with his chest protector, and then uh, sort of it all went wrong. But the fact that he recovered from that, I think, was a sign that he was really um, that there was something special going on. That he he'd found the calmness that he needed, and that was one of the the hallmarks of his championship. Anytime there was a, a difficult day or some kind of adversity, he would come back the next weekend and. Uh put in a, a sort of champion's performance, if you will. You think of that instance you were talking about, Davey replied to that by going to the Saxon ring and asked him by getting third and first. Uh, he had a bit of a nightmare at Aragon, but he you know, replied to that, going to Mizano and, and finishing a really narrow second, fighting and hunting by Nia Down. Um, in the second half of that race, you know, there were there were lots of moments where you thought, oh, okay, this might be for a, a slightly immature um, petulant Fabio that he's maybe been in the past. This could this could be a tipping point, but um, he always came out swinging uh, the following weekend. Yeah, it was also interesting seeing sort of in the far, in the last two races uh, after the season had finished that he's sort of let it go a little bit. You know, it it, it stopped mattering, or it seemed to stop mattering to him, um, and he didn't have that same focus and, and intensity. Uh, and had probably his two worst races of the season after that. Before that, he was just absolutely on it week in, week out, whether things were right, wrong, whatever. He was always there. Adam, other than cashing the check with the Telegraph for this article that you wrote, uh, what was your moment of the year for Quattro? Um, my moment, Steve, is actually kind of wrapped up in a bit of an apology to Neil because um, Neil wrote a blog for On Track Off Road uh, midway through 2019, uh, pretty much you know, extending that early hype I was talking about um, with Fabio uh, as a MotoGP rookie. And I felt at the time it was a little premature. Uh, it was a case of a rookie coming in, exceeding expectations, blending incredibly well with the Yamaha. Um, and I just felt it was a little bit too early to start saying the new Messiah has come along. Um, everybody move over. Um, but you know, uh, Neil again, I think submitted another text, uh, you know, pretty much the same time the following year after he'd just won the first two races in Hereth. Um, you know, and of course, uh, you know, I was still feeling a little bit reserved about him. Um, and I think he finished in the top 10 twice in the last eight Grand Prix and his, his championship went off the rails, uh, last year. And so my moment from this season is really, uh, is Hereth. Uh, the Spanish Grand Prix where he was in the lead and and faded back to 13th with an R-pump problem. Um, At the time, it looked like he was, you know, 
it was hard to really deduce he was, whether he was suffering from arm pump or he had a tire issue or there was something else going on. Jack Miller was hunting him down. And I think some of uh, Quatarara's problem that day uh, was obfuscated by the joy that surrounded Miller's victory. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, well-wishing for the Australian on that day. But then Quattararo had arm pump surgery. Um, and like, you know, Dave and Neil hinted at in their exposition so far, you know, he bounced back from that moment of adversity. And to be honest, I found Quattararo in, in the first season or two quite irritating. I mean, there were moments of real histronics where he would miss a qualification lap um, you know, or a pole position attempt and it would be smashing the bike, um, you know, ripping off his visor to his helmet inadvertently through frustration and you kind of think well calm down you know uh you know you're still on the first row or the second row or whatever uh but then in 2021 he kind of like neil said the petulance uh the childishness that kind of went to one side and um he used uh some incredible setup work in the winter to make you know his feeling with the m1 which he talks about you know in the in the interview to follow uh really the bedrock of his success and I guess if you have that confidence in the motorcycle, then whether your teammate is um, having a mental meltdown next to you in the garage, uh, Yamaha are, are struggling to find some sort of solution that keeps them in a decent public face or keeps their bid to be champion, you know, champions, both teams, constructors and riders on, on in good terms, is uh, doesn't really matter. So um, full credit to Fabio. I think if he continues to you know progress in this way mentally as well as in terms of his technique, he's still so young, only 22 years old then, uh, you know, he's going to be a potent force. You think at the, at the end of last season, he had a dismal, dismal end of the year and he went away and he saw a psychologist a couple of times and he basically just worked on himself. And if you speak to people from Yamaha, they said he did that all off his own back. Um, it was basically, you know, Yamaha had nothing to do with it. And when he showed up for preseason testing at the start of this year, uh, he had kind of done all that work over the off season and, and basically had had come to an understanding that he had to improve on that. Um, and for a guy who was, what, 21 uh, at the start of the year, um, you know, it's pretty mature and it's also just remarkably intelligent and, and effective. It was a weakness. He worked on it. We didn't see that weakness this year. And not everyone, I mean, I'm stating the obvious here, uh, can do that. You know, it does, some for some riders, some some elite athletes, it takes a lot longer to iron out their, their, their weak points. But, um, you know, Fabio acknowledged at the end of last year yes he was too emotional he, he would let emotions get the better of him that would cloud his judgment and he wouldn't be able to give good feedback in the garage uh he went away and worked on it and this year he wasn't like that at all um and that's a pretty remarkable transformation to go through in the space of just one preseason. Yeah, that was one of the things I enjoyed in uh, Ad's interview with with Fabio was that you know Fabio talked about that uh, the difficulties uh, after winning his first two races um, in 2020, and then um, also the fact that there was all this stuff going on about uh, going on around him uh, throughout 2021. Um, and like I think I've said it before in uh, on the podcast that I. There is, I have sort of a theory that actually with all this drama going on around him, it made his job easier because there was so much focus on all of this sort of madness with Maverick Vinales going on and all these sort of teammates coming in and out and, and all the rest of it, that it just allowed him to like put his head down and get on with it, get on with the job. There was less media focus on him 
uh, as a result because everyone was talking about sort of what was going on with Maverick, who was going to replace uh, Maverick, um, what was going to going to happen with the with the Patronus team and all the rest of it. There's all these other things going on with Yamaha, which just meant that all Fabio Quattararo had to do was just turn up on Sunday or, you know, turn up on Thursday, work through his weekend, race on Sunday and go away. It it lightens the media load. And again, it was interesting at the end of that interview when he's talking about sort of uh, the, this sort of sudden burst of, of um, media attention, which he's facing now that he is, um, uh, now that he's world champion. On the one hand, it's good. But on the other hand, uh, it, it's something which he hasn't had before. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting things from the interview. And obviously, after the break, we'll be able to to hear that from Fabio. For me, probably my best moment of the year or my favourite moment of the year was probably his win at the Dutch TT. And again, he does talk about that during the interview with that. But I think even more impressive than what we saw from Fabio that day, because it was a really controlled ride. I think he had 10 or 15 laps all within a few tenths of each other at a track like Aston. It's impressive. He managed the race really well, came into that one where obviously the pressure was on because Maverick looked really good that weekend. Fabio found a way to win. But I think even more impressive than that level of control that Fabio had over his emotions was probably Ad's level of control over his emotions when Fabio <laughs> called it the cathedral. Uh. Steve, I was largely smiling through the interview, but as soon as you said that, I think that the, you know, my kind of brow furrowed and it was, uh, mate, you know, I had such respect for you before you dipped into <laughs> oh, horrible cliche. The brow furrowed more than its kind of natural resting point. Yeah. I thought, thought that was right. impossible. No, it was, it was a bit of a, a scowl, Neil. I think <laughs> I alarmed him. Obviously enough, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, we've got that Renthal Street Sessions interview between Adam and Fabio Quattraro. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. I think it's more difficult to make to find a really good technique, let's say. And I feel MotoGP is less technique than motocross. I mean, um, motocross, the track is always changing. And for us, it's the same condition, okay? The temperature can change. But I think it's just with the experience of riding and riding, you know, and I think also looking at the, the videos from the previous years, I think one thing that is really important for the technique is the tire construction, how you are using your mapping. So I think it's more than technique. I think it's more be ready mentally to, to really, you know, change the maps in the correct moment, use your brain to, let's say, really keep your tire fresh to the end. That's something that in the beginning of the, when I arrived in MotoGP, I just keep wide open until the end and then the tire was destroyed <laughs> and everything. But uh, right now you are think <clears throat> you need to think while you are riding fast. So that's for me uh, something super important on, on a MotoGP bike. When you were younger, um, how, how did you develop your feeling? You know, how, how, where did it come from? Was it mainly off-road stuff or were you, you know, where, did it, where did the ability to go fast on a motorbike come from? Well, when I was really, really young was because every Saturday and Sunday I was training on the small bike and uh, like that, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday was 
was let's say my my weekend was just running and i think every time you find a little bit more the limit you are faster uh, you know what you want to do so i think this is also how you develop yourself in a bike and uh, and uh, i think yeah like right now i'm doing a lot of stuff with motorcycle let's say um flat track motocross trial um and i think everything on two wheels uh with an engine you can learn from it and uh you take experience and i think that's also what i i did this year i did a lot of moto uh then of course after half of the season i was a little bit scared to get injured so i stopped but uh, i think it's so super important for us to to really make a lot of, of motorcycle to improve our technique and also um physically is is super important do you feel free in, with a bike in MotoGP or is it more like a job, you know, like a calculation? I mean, you don't make, maybe you don't feel the same when you're an enduro or a motocross. It's different. Of course, you feel it like a job because uh, you have a lot of responsibility. Let's say when you're riding a motocross, if you do one lap slow, then you stop. I mean, you can have fun, but like from last year, I really consider it like a job of course when i'm on the bike i'm having fun like uh, like nobody <laughs> but you need to be also clever you can do whatever you want so i consider first of all like something that i love but also like a job because uh you have a lot of responsibility and uh, and you need to go for one reason and needs to win so um that's for me uh something that that I love, but of course you can't ride as free as when you are home training alone. I remember in Mizano, you said one of the important things this year was the feeling of the front end for the Yamaha. Is so much of your technique based on that feeling? Uh, and is it maybe different to some of the other riders around you? Yes, that's for sure. I think a rider needs something that, uh, you know, for me, my first request is to have the front feeling like when you are braking super late and you have the feeling like, you are losing it, but it's still holding. So that means like you arrive really close to the limit. So you know that after that, you can go more fast. <laughs> and for me, this is what I need. Some riders need also the feeling from the rear. Um, me, I'm more asking from the front. So every rider have a request to being faster. And for me, it was that, you know, to have that front feeling, also to overtake and everything. So... I would say that is really, really important thing to um, to really uh, have a request from a rider. And I think my one was just, you know, the first one is that one. Are you quite special when it comes to your setup? I'm quite easy uh, on that, uh, on that side. But um, the thing I'm really, really special is with my gloves. Um, you know, a lot of riders use maybe one per, per per race or you know during the the the, um, the year that you're using 10 or 15 this year i used only two pairs of gloves uh and i'm someone that really like used gloves uh and alpine start to me use the new ones but i ca i can't use it so <laughs> more than something with the with the, the bike and everything is something with um with my gloves uh that is super important and my inner boots i use the same inner boots for two years okay um, Booties. yes exactly 
Um, so this is the two things I'm, I'm really special because, you know, with Alpine Star, we are using a lot of the boots, but the inner boots is always the same. So I have, during the year, I think I used 10 or 15 pair of boots, but the inner boots always the same for two years. So um, this is something super funny. Just talking about this year, Fabio, was, do you think Assen was maybe one of the most important moments of the year? Because it came after Catalonia, which was obviously the problem with the, with the suit. And then Mark won in Germany. Uh, I know you got on the podium there as well, but Assen was like a really big race, wasn't it? Yes, it was a really big race because I had also my teammate was P1 all the weekend and I was behind all the weekend and I won that one. So also mentally for me it was okay. Uh, you were faster all the weekend, but here I am and uh, I won that race. So mentally, just before the summer break, also, you know, you, we were living for one month. You are living like a, the world championship leader, the one that uh, won the last race before the summer break. So mentally, I left super, super strong and ready for, for the second part of the season. So was a really good moment for me. And we know that Asen is a track that everyone wants to win is the cathedral i mean uh, for me there is a few tracks in the in the world championship that everyone uh, will be proud to win of course a win is a win but to win in mugello uh, to win in Assen is and philip island i think this is the track that the, all the people wants wants to win there I mean, the amazing thing about Assen as well is that, you know, all the, all the mess of Maverick going on around you, it must have been a little bit distracting to, you know, I know you are focused with your crew and with Tom and everyone you have around you, but still, it must have been crazy. Yeah, of course. Uh, when you heard about uh, the, pre the press conference on, on Saturday, on Sunday from Maverick was like, what is happening? But for me... Uh, a, strong, a strong person mentally, like I, I didn't care, you know, I was there for me. I'm a person that is, is really strong on that side. I say, look, it's happening close to me, of course, could have been difficult for me, you know, because a lot of people, riders, let's say, was complaining about the bike and everything. But I was there and I was just on it. I say, look, I'm leader of the championship. I won the race in Asen. Uh, that's it uh forget of of all these these comments and and for me it was like no distraction at all so that's also for me a part of my uh maturity uh growing up and uh was was super nice for me to to win this year on such a difficult year for yamaha so i'm this is something that i'm really proud of yeah, because you would imagine the Fabio of 2019 or 2020 might have been a bit, you know, dis well, distracted by this stuff. But it seemed like you put you passed the page this year. Yes, and I think also la last year, what I said is I lose a great chance to win for the championship uh, in 2020. But also I had many new things like being leader of the world championship. I've never been in Moto3 and Moto2. Having bad moments and good moments in one season um taking out the maximum you can from from the best you have and this year is what i did and i put everything together and we won the championship two races in advance so that's something that i i really appreciate what does it actually feel like when you know you can win you know the the, the title is kind of realistic because i'm sure you come into the season think well we'll give our best and see where we end up but 
you know, when you can see that it's actually possible, what does that feel like? I mean, is it is it something exciting or is it something a bit worrying? It's both. Let's say when <laughs> I was in Austria, uh, in Austria, after the two Austria, I had 44 points, I think, of advantage or 46. I don't remember. And I was looking for the end of the season, you know, because you want to know what is going to happen. And uh, and uh, it's also a bit a bit stressful because you say is seven races remaining seven races remaining is a lot and uh, let's say i was riding free then i win in silverstone i had a really good race in misano and then it's only was four races remaining when we were in austin and peko was really on fire at that moment and uh, you know you are thinking i don't want to make a mistake at that moment but i also need to make a great result to keep my points so it's both sides and um end of the season was really really stressful and more when you never win a world championship and you are fighting for the first time so was a really really now i can say was a really funny year where i learned a lot how to manage uh, emotions and um and pressure and, and stress and then lastly i mean i asked you in the press conference in valencia this question but talk about it a bit more for me i mean how has life changed as world champion i mean is there i mean there must be some a nice financial side for you and the family but there's also things like being on in on the front of the keep and um i guess the tv work uh you know is it is it uh, pretty crazy i mean like jason anderson for example when he won the supercross title said he couldn't believe he was not ready for all the stuff he had to do off the bike. I mean, it really threw him, actually. It's uh, super special. And also from the outside, you know, like the that a lot of people now, uh, I realize, like, also in the street, you know, many people recognize me um, because I think of that, of all the TVs I make, the front, pa- the front papers like Le Keep, um being world champion change even if you think it don't change it change a little bit your life because many people know um like well this guy won a world championship and more because he's recently um and also he's he's super special i didn't really um you know believe it in the first moment you know when we won the championship of course we celebrate a lot with the team but for me the day after was kind of normal you know just a normal hangover <laughs> after <laughs> after a, a party and i was like well but i'm world champion you know and i needed to watch so much the video of the celebration to to really realize what happened and normally when you win a race you you look at it and you realize straight away yeah but the championship for me was like a a, a race win <clears throat> and was like it's not normal you know and every time you watch the celebration, you say, wow, I achieved my, my biggest dream. So, uh, of course, it changed and it changed on a good way. Then, of course, you have a lot of new friends. But this is, I mean, the the reality. And um, but, yeah, looking at at least 20 times the, the celebration and everything is where you really realize that uh, your life changed and, um, and you achieved uh, your biggest dream. So it's something amazing. Guys, quick question, um, you know, after hearing from Fabio there, does he stay with Yamaha? I mean, there's already some rumors flying around. He might be a target for, for Repsol Honda. 
for 2023. Um, you know, and judging by what happens next year, will Yamaha be able to give any more horsepower? Uh, you know, does he get on a Ducati? Uh, what do you reckon? Well, I think he will stay with Yamaha if he can put up a decent defense next year. Uh, we saw this with Xuan Mir, that Xuan was really, really quite upset with Suzuki throughout the year just because the bike wasn't uh, wasn't good enough. Um, obviously, Quattraro has been saying, you know, look, I need more horsepower, I need more horsepower. Uh, but, you know, he did quite well without a lot of horsepower. So um, Yamaha are always quite conservative with their development direction. Uh, they've made a big step. They should be able to make a sort of a reasonable step. He's not going to get the horsepower that he wants. Um, uh, but I, th I think he can definitely sort of, he'll have a bike that he can use. I think moving to Honda would be an absolute disaster for him. I don't think he would be able to ride that uh, very well. There's also the question mark of what happens to Mark Marquez. Uh, you know, will he be racing next year? If he is racing, what shape will, will he be in? How fit will he be? Uh, how will the eye problems affect the recovery which he's been going through with his, uh, with his shoulder and his arm? Um, th th there's so many open question marks there that it looks like uh, Honda are going to be very, very aggressive with uh, trying to re recruit people. And then it becomes a question of who sort of, you know, who goes where. I think we could uh, sort of in the coming season actually see a very, very wide open riders market depending. We could either see lots of people moving or nobody moving at all. Um, and it's going to sort of uh, hinge on who what happens with Mark Marquez and who ends up going if one person goes from one uh, from one factory to another then i think the whole thing is all of a sudden completely wide open and of course there's the, the there's the fact that Yamaha have made no secret that they're still chasing Ralph Fernandez and Ralph Fernandez has also made no secret of the fact that he's uh, really very angry at KTM for putting them in the Tech 3 team yeah and obviously and i think one of the big things as well is when you look at where Fabio will go, is Ducati going to be an option? Because on the basis of Peko Bagnaia's second half of the year, those runs of pole positions, winning races, how strong he was, he's obviously going to stay at Ducati. Do you want to lose Jorge Martin on the basis of what he did in his rookie season? If he has a strong first half of next season, Ducati are going to look at it and say, you know, these could be our two factory riders going forward, even if Quattararo is on the market, even if Juan Mir is on the market. And I think that could take away, or well, it would take away arguably the most sought after seat. Do you want to go to Repsol Honda on the basis of how competitive Repsol Honda have been in previous years? That didn't work out too well for Paul Espagaro last season. So there's a lot of things that could mean that Fabio might look to at least keep one more contract with Yamaha, regardless of what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, how well did it work out for Jorge Lorenzo when he went there? Uh, it's it, uh, Repsol Honda is a really really big uh, risk I think uh, obviously they've got this completely new bike and I keep on saying this I cannot emphasize just how very different this new bike is it's, it's new right from the ground up um, it's got a different feeling uh, Paul Sparger was very very positive about the about the new bike when he was talking about it uh, so yeah it, it it's a really really big thing um, 
So we'll have to see how that develops. If it looks like all of a sudden, you know, like more than one rider can actually ride the uh, the, the Honda, uh, then I think you'll get a lot more interest from it. But if it's, again, this sort of really sketchy bike um, that needs a very, very specific riding style to get the best out of it, then people might be a little bit wary and will uh, look a lot... It, it's really going to revolve around how many different people are or how riders feel about the progress that their own factories have made. I mean, you know, Miguel Oliveira is also another rider who is not exactly exuding uh, a confidence and joy with his current employers. Um, he hasn't said anything, but he hasn't really sort of shown a great deal of uh, of. of he was never the you know the 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 happiest person in his debriefs, and you really got the sense that he was not happy with the uh, with what KTM had done, and they hadn't given him a, um, a a competitive enough motorbike. So I think there's going to be a lot of this going on in the next in the next few months. I think um, I think a lot of it will depend on on the early part of preseason and how Yamaha has developed. Um, you know, Fabio has mentioned that. He's no, by no means guaranteed to stay with Yamaha after 2022. Um, if you think back to the start of 2020, when Yamaha announced that uh, um, you know they would sign Fabio up to the factory team for 21 and 22, so basically a season in advance. Um, you know the factories are going to be talking to to riders uh, during this winter time, and currently two of the maybe four or five best riders in the world, Fabio Quartararo and Juan Mir, are sort of in this situation where they're like, okay, we need to make big, big steps as a manufacturer um, to uh, to basically get up there and, and challenge the caddy next year. So I think a lot will be riding for those two guys and for their manufacturers, Yamaha and Suzuki, on the preseason, just how far their machines have come over the winter. Yeah, and remember, Yamaha have formed for signing people very, very early. If you think about, you know, Maverick Vinales being signed in, I think, January, um, uh, Fabio Quattararo being signed, you know, sort of a bit just before the Sepang tests. They, for the past, like, I don't know, maybe three contract cycles, Yamaha have been signing people before the before the season, season has even begun. Uh, and the same with Ducati have been quite keen to get things done early. So, yeah, it, it could kick off quite early. And it's going to be interesting to see whether they do wait, for whether riders do wait until the tests uh, to get a sense of what the bikes are doing before actually making a decision. It's obviously all kicking off in a couple of days as well with uh, Christmas just around the corner, boys. And uh, obviously, enough, I, I tend to leave all of my shopping until Christmas Eve, go in in a mad panic at half past five, shops close at six o'clock. I've got no real choice about what I'm going to buy for anyone. But obviously, we've got a couple of days in hand right now. So, Adam, what's your ideal Christmas present for a MotoGP fan this year? Oh, God, that's put me on the spot. Um... It certainly has. I don't know, any leftover Valentino Rossi merchandise, perhaps? Uh, actually, that's a lie, isn't it? It's still going to fly off the shelves even next year or for the next year or two. Um, Decade I think all or Val two. Yeah, all Valentino has to do is announce his presence in the paddock and you know that will be uh, enough to, to draw some attention at least. Um, I don't know, there's plenty of books out there, Steve. I mean, grab a, grab a, a MotoGP book, a good racing book while you can. I'm actually just finishing one about um, Formula One and Monaco at the moment, so uh, completely un-MotoGP related. But, um, you know, there or even take... To be, 
There happens to be an end-of-year annual ad which uh, sums up the racing season as a whole uh, by the name of uh, Motocourse, which uh, has been running since 1977 and is packed full of interesting features and uh, and writing about uh, about World Superbike, about MotoGP, about the national seasons. Um, I think it makes a pretty good Christmas gift for uh, any bike-living fan. It's a good shout now, but I didn't think of it because I have to read your stories you know, every other week. So um, having to open a, a you know a very fine publication and read your stuff again is probably you can never read too much Neil Morrison. Yeah, this is true. I'm being very cynical. It's a great shout. It's a great shout. Motocourse, an institution. I, I'll be honest. The first thing I do when I open up Motocourse is go to the top ten list to see how Michael Scott's list would compare to mine. And obviously, on next week's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to have our top ten list, so we'll be able to see how our top ten compares to the motocourse top ten. But Dave, what about you? Ideal Christmas present? Uh, well, the, I mean, uh, the he's uh, had it <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to put a little hat on it because it's the right colour already in it. Um, uh, my 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 red motorbike. But uh, yes, no, uh, I obviously. With Valentina Rossi retiring, there's lots and lots of books um, out there. Uh, I'm quite interesting to see Matt Oxley's book, uh, in part also because the photographs, because it has a lot of photographs by a Dutch photographer and journalist, Henk Kolemans, who's been in the paddock for a very long time and has followed Valentina Rossi right from the beginning of his career. Um, so there's lots of uh, th- that I think is going to be interesting. Uh, I was also given a book uh, by Checho Lazaro, um, a Spanish book on Valentina Rossi, which um, I have Se also... Espetacolo. Yeah, que espectáculo. That's right. Which is, um, I, I mean, I've only just sort of you know thumbed through it. That looks very good. Uh, if you read Spanish, if if you read, Spanish. but even then, like it's got uh, the, there was a thing of all of his helmets and stuff, and you think, oh yeah, that's really that's really quite good. The the, the pictures themselves were also good enough, but then you don't have to be able to get, to obtain it outside of uh, Spain. But if you are in Spain and Spanish, then I would definitely take a look at that one. Neil, motocourse, then the the top of the list for you. Uh, I would say so, Steve. Yeah, um, bit of motocourse action is always uh, is always welcome. I always associate that with Christmas as well. Uh, yeah, I guess Matt Oxley's uh, Rossi book looks like um, it's uh, well worth a read. Bit of an opus as well. Uh, I think but it's not com- out till January, so it's not ah. going to be a Christmas present. Oh, vouchers. Okay. That's what vouchers are for, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's been bought online anyway. So it's just, uh, you, you'll get it when you get yeah, it. What, there must be a problem with the Amazon delivery. Exactly. Man. What everyone is getting for Christmas is an apology note from Amazon that they haven't been able to deliver their uh, their, their goods on time. I have to say, Motocourse is always at the top of my list for Christmas presents. And uh, for years, I always said to you know family, I was there, yeah, if you just get me Motocourse, yeah, that's Motocourse. That's the the annual, the year-ending book that sums up everything in motorcycle racing. If you get me Motocourse <laughs> every year without fail, I got the wrong fucking review book. <laughs> and I eventually just ended up buying it myself. And then one year, I ended up with three copies of one of the books when they eventually all just started. I think Steve, Steve wants the Motocourse book this year, lads. <laughs> Obviously enough, though, one of the best Christmas presents anyone could give anyone for uh, for this year is to support the Paddock Pass podcast. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where for $10 a month, you can get an awful lot of additional content all the way through the season. We do also have an annual option for that. So you get a discount if you go for the 12 months of uh, the Paddock Insiders. So check that out, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, from all of us, Steve English, Adam Wheeler, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, 
Jensen Beeler as well. A big thank you to everyone for listening to the show through the course this year, and we hope it's a very happy Christmas for all of our listeners. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Oh, I was going to go for that, but that's all right. Because, oh. in which case, I should go for the, um, uh, no, the chest, uh, the chesty. Okay. Oh yeah, zipper gate. Zipper gate. I'm going to go for the win at the cathedral. <laughs> Ugh, if you fucking call it that, Steve, then just don't bother. <laughs> I'll go for. <laughs>